Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. Parking at SFO is easy when you book online. You can choose dates and times in advance and secure the best rates to make your departure stress-free. Learn more at flysfo.com parking. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. From KQD in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. At this point, it's pretty likely that one piece of transforming our society to dampen the effects of climate change can be summed up in two words, electrify everything. But we have a long, long way to go and the details and timing really matter. So today on Forum, we're gonna look at some of the new exciting things in EVs like the new trucks and evolving e-bikes and also dig into the gnarly infrastructure changes that will be necessary to turn EVs from a luxury good into a mainstay of transportation. And we'll also ask, how far can EVs get us towards our climate goals for transportation? Probably not all the way, so what else needs to change? That's all next, after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. You look at the projections for electric vehicles from places like the International Energy Agency or Goldman Sachs, and they show sales of EVs taking off like iPhones to become the dominant form of passenger vehicle by 2035 or 2040. And the steep part of the charts, where electric cars really start to go, tend to be right around now, the early 2020s. In recent weeks, major federal and state funds have been allocated to expand charging networks, and it seems like there are new EVs or car company production goals announced every week. Here to help us sort through the hype and excitement, we're joined by three longtime watchers of this space. Katie Fehrenbacher is a journalist who covers climate tech and clean mobility, and she was one of my very first editors. Welcome, Katie. Thanks, Alexis. Glad to be here. Yeah, glad to have you. Patty Monahan is a commissioner at the California Energy Commission. Welcome, Commissioner Monahan. Thank you. And Scott Hardman is a researcher at the Plug-in Hybrid and Electric Vehicle Research Center at UC Davis. Welcome, Scott. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for thanks for joining us as well. Katie, I wanted to start with you. I mean, we've been writing about this stuff. You in particular have <laughs> been writing about these things for more than 15 years now, and you've kind of seen different waves of electric vehicle excitement come and go. How are things different now in comparison to kind of the previous uh, decades? Yeah. I mean, I think now is the real deal. Um, I think that the um, the technology that lithium ion batteries have gotten cheap enough so that um, electric cars are becoming um, uh, more mainstream. I think the car company sales volumes are going up. I think the mandates are all in place. I mean, I think everything is kind of coalescing together to make this a really exciting and important tipping point. Um, like you said, back when we were first covering these things, there was not the incentives, the technology was too expensive. Um, you know, there's all these variety of things that were happening that um, were a barrier to, um, to get to this mainstream point. And I think that um, right now is kind of a really exciting and important time. Yeah. Commissioner Monahan, you know, both Governor Newsom and President 
Biden are pushing electric vehicles. Could you maybe fill us in on what you see as the most relevant kind of state and federal legislation that's coming to California over the next year? Well, last year, in, in the wake of California's devastating wildfires, Governor Newsom was called to action to address the number one source of global warming pollution in the state of California, which is transportation emissions. So in, in, in terms of total state emissions, uh, the emissions from transportation are half of all of our global warming pollution, half. <laughs> and what's more concerning or as concerning is that emissions have been slightly trending up over the last decade. You know, we've seen um, a lot of progress in terms of cutting emissions statewide and cutting emissions from the electricity sector in particular, but transportation has just been a stubborn sector to decarbonize. Yeah. And in part, it's because people like to drive. They like to drive uh, SUVs and light trucks, which are just less fuel efficient. Um, and what Governor Newsom said last year was... Is it also, though, our urban plans, Commissioner Monahan? Like we, yeah. you know, here in the Bay Area, we keep pushing people further and further away from the downtown cores, and so they have to drive more miles. Yeah, I mean, for sure, that's part of it, is that people need to, you know, it's expensive to live in urban centers. People need to drive to work. Uh, and we, we don't have a lot of transportation alternatives. So that is definitely uh, a part of it. But I will say, you know, this is a trend we see not just in California, but across the, the country, mm -hmm. that there's a preference for larger vehicles that are just less fuel efficient. Mm -hmm. You know, so, Scott. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Pat. Oh, well, just one last thing is, you know, uh, that, that California is not just looking at zero emission light duty passenger vehicles, but also trucks and buses, you know, that are major polluters when it comes to uh, communities and, and exposure to harmful diesel particulates. Yeah. And we're definitely going to talk about that later, about not just electrifying cars, but all those other types of vehicles in the kind of electrify everything uh, rubric. Uh, Commissioner Monahan, before we go to Scott, I just wanted to, what about the federal legislation that is coming to California to help us sort of build out the charging networks? Yeah, I'm super excited about the fact that the infrastructure bill uh, included $5 billion for EV charging corridors. And so California is going to get around, I think it's around $365 million will come to California to supplement what the state, so the state is already investing. Uh, we just approved a plan that would, over the next three years, invest $1.1 billion in EV charging infrastructure. So having a federal partner to supplement the big commitment that the state is already making is just really great and a refreshing change from the previous administration. Is that going to make a difference? Like is $365 million in California kind of a drop in the bucket or what, is it, uh, what does it do for us? You know, it's not a drop in the bucket, uh, but it's not sufficient to meet our goals either. So we, um, we've done an analysis of charging needs and what we see is we have about 75-ish thousand chargers today. We need uh, in the light duty sector, uh, 1.2 million chargers by 2030. And so we're, we we need like a Manhattan project when it comes to the build out of charging infrastructure. Got it. You know, Scott, uh, California, we like to think of ourselves as a leader in electric vehicles, you know, uh, Tesla born here, obviously, among other uh, innovations. And are, are we still there or have we really fallen behind other parts of the world in terms of the adoption, at least, of these vehicles? Yeah, that's a that's a really good question. Um, I would say that California has always been a leader. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the zero emission vehicle 
sales regulation, which required car companies to sell electric vehicles, you know, that, that started here and that, you know, really led to the commercialization of electric vehicles in California, the US and, and beyond. Um, and, you know, we were early to introduce incentives, invest in infrastructure and so on. But I do think now that we are falling behind um, other nations because we haven't sufficiently refined um, some of these policies driving the market and other nations and, and regions have. So, so, you know, the US and Europe, there are quite similar um, sized vehicle market. Um, and for a long time, the US and Europe were sort of neck and neck. But now the, the market in Europe is about three and a half times the size of that in the US because mm. they've got tighter regulations and we sort of haven't been able to update these regulations yet which the the air resources board is going to be updating them soon which i think is you know very much needed so we can sort of catch back up and have the in europe have the regulations or the the laws that have driven electric vehicle adoption have they been mostly about restricting the sale of internal combustion vehicles or have they been more on incentivizing the purchase of electric vehicles? I, I think it's a little bit of both. So on, on the supply side sort of regulations, the, the regulations that tell car companies, you know, what kind of vehicles they need to, to, to create. In Europe, they have much tighter um, regulations on that. So it basically says that the average vehicle in, in Europe needs to have 95 grams of carbon dioxide emissions per kilometer, which, which roughly translates to about 60 miles per gallon. Whereas in the US, our regulation currently says the average needs to be about 40. So in Europe, you can't have an average sort of fleet of sales of 60 miles per gallon if you don't sell electric vehicles. So that's really driving the, the supply of vehicles in Europe is this much tighter um, sort of vehicle efficiency standard. And, and then you also have on the sort of incentive side, um, whereas in the US and California, we give people money to buy electric vehicles. We don't necessarily dissuade them from buying a gasoline vehicle, whereas in some European countries they do with sort of higher taxes. So there's sort of this, you know, there's this push and this pull to mm -hmm. electric vehicles, uh, which we don't have. You know, one of the things that uh, is new relative to, you know, years ago are these stated internal combustion engine phase out dates that different countries uh, have been adopting. In in your view, how much is that driving what the car companies themselves are doing, just knowing that in some places they're not going to be able to sell internal combustion vehicles after some date in the future? Yeah, I think that's very important. I think car companies always want certainty. It, it takes a long time for them to, to change what they're making. And so they need to know, like, okay, what is our timeline for producing electric vehicles? What factories do we need to build? What supply chains do we need to set up? So, you know, while some of these targets aren't, like legally binding at the moment, they do send a strong signal to the car companies that this is where we're going. You need to be prepared for this. Yeah. You know, Katie, a lot of the big companies have, you know, started upping their forecasts, uh, you know, companies like Ford uh, for electric vehicles. And I feel like we've seen this before. We saw this with Nissan, right, in the early 2010s. Um, do this time around, though, it seems like almost every car company, it's not like one or two car companies kind of going. It seems like everybody's now chasing kind of the like Tesla, basically. Is that mm -hmm. right? Yeah. I mean, I think they've seen the success that Tesla has had so far and they're worried. And, um, you know, what's different these days is that if they don't react and they don't electrify, electrify, then they're um, it'll be a competitive disadvantage, you know. So, you know, Ford, I think, has been a really interesting and aggressive company. You know, they've got these uh, really hot cars. So they got the Mustang Mach-E, the Lightning F-150, and then the E-Transit in the commercial space. But 
they have seen a, a really large amount of um, interest and reservations for those cars. Um, whereas, you know, back in the day when we were first writing about this, the companies would create these, you know, compliance cars that were not generating excitement. So I think they've learned from Tesla. They've seen um, how Tesla has really sparked the imagination and excitement of consumers, and they're trying to copy that approach. Yeah. Here, Scott, well, one thing we haven't talked about is, you know, if you look at the global numbers, I mean, the Chinese uh, seem to really be pushing hard on electric vehicles of all types. Uh, yeah, de- definitely. I mean, I-, I was talking about Europe before, but China is also ahead uh, of, of the U.S. And I mean, I don't really know what more to say there is about that other than we need to update our, um, you know, federal fuel economy standards and California needs to update the you know, zero emission vehicle sales requirement. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that just ha- has occurred to me looking at some of the, the different charts is just how many different uh, electric vehicle models are available in China and that it's not really uh, the kind of on the more luxury side of the scale like we've um, seen in the U.S. But we're talking about the future of electric vehicles and what role they may play in helping us battle climate change. We're joined by Scott Hardman, researcher at the Plug-In Hybrid and Electric Vehicle Research Center at UC Davis. Patty Monahan, a commissioner at the California Energy Commission, and Katie Fehrenbacher, journalist who has been covering climate tech and clean mobility for more than 15 years. And we want to hear from you. What are your questions about next generation electric vehicles? And are you in the market for an EV right now? And what could push you to get one? And what sort of factors are you balancing? Give us a call now, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Get in touch, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or at KQED Forum. You can email your questions or your comments about electric vehicles to forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more Forum after the break. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the future of electric vehicles, what role they may play in helping us battle climate change, and also what environmental impacts battery production and electric vehicles have anyway. I want to start welcoming some listeners into the show. Uh, first, we have Ide from Berkeley. Welcome to the show. Hi, good morning. i just like not to damp everybody statistic, uh, about uh, electric cars. But until our energy sources, electricity, is derived from green sources, actually, electric cars cost us more uh, carbon dioxide because the source we'll get the electricity from 
are not uh, are fossil fuel. Most of it are fossil fuel. Most of the energy we get, we have a couple of nuclear power plants, which were great. Actually, that's my field, nuclear engineering. We should have continued with nuclear power plants across the country, but we haven't. Uh, so uh, nuclear car, because of engineering factor, uses produces more CO2 than regular cars, if you count it. Uh, you know, Depending even, on the sort of, yeah, the nature of the, the grid mix. Thank you for that uh, for that query. Patty Monahan, let's, uh, Commissioner with California Energy Commission, what does the accounting look like here in California, given our particular um, energy, electricity mix on the grid? Well, California's grid is clean and getting cleaner all the time. So emissions from uh, the electricity sector continue to go down because of California's policies. So we have a policy that requires the grid to get 60% of its energy from renewable zero carbon resources by 2030 and 100% by 2045. Uh, So you can rest assured if you're plugging your vehicle into the grid in California, that it is cleaner than an internal combustion vehicle and it's gonna get cleaner still. The Union of Concerned Scientists did an analysis across the entire country because there are you know, parts of uh, the country that get a lot of their energy from coal still. And they still found that uh, across the entire country that it is cleaner to drive an electric vehicle. And because the cost of solar and wind is now lower than, uh, than fossil fuel combustion um, across the country, I mean, we're going to see just economics driving a cleaner grid over time. But I do agree with the assessment that you you have to make sure that as you are plugging in your vehicle, that you're requiring the electricity sector to get cleaner and cleaner. Yeah. I mean, I guess the the nice thing is as the grid cleans up, it's like making every electric car that's plugging into it cleaner as well. So there's a nice... Um, there's some leverage there. Let's bring in um, Noah into the show. Welcome to the show, Noah. Hello. Thank you. Uh, yes, my comment is that my understanding is there is already enough carbon in the atmosphere to warm the planet roughly three degrees Celsius, which is outside of our kind of habitable range. Um, producing electric cars, regardless of whether or not you plug them in, requires the creation of new supply lines and new production chains that have huge carbon emissions. And my feeling is this electric car craze feels like a way for automakers to get their last laugh without fundamentally reimagining the kind of transportation systems that could actually reduce carbon in a meaningful amount of time. For instance, trains and buses, other kinds of public transportation that the United States has never seriously considered without huge uh, propaganda campaigns from automakers to intentionally destroy those systems. And as a restoration ecologist by trade, it is extremely disheartening to me to hear people talking over and over about these individualized products that they think are going to solve climate change by individuals. This is not the solution. Major industries need to fundamentally change the way they interact with consumers if they're going to have an impact. That's my comment. Hey, thank you, Noah. Scott Hardman, let's go to you and let's maybe address the second part uh, of Noah's uh, question there, which is, are EVs really the answer here, uh, or do we need, on a on a very accelerated timeline, to completely change the way that we are doing transportation, rather than highways and big, you know, materials-intensive 
uh, transportation for individual people. Yeah, I mean, he raises an excellent point. Um, you know, single occupancy vehicles, you know, they are not the best way for people to get around. We, we do need to invest more in, in walking, biking, and transit. Um, you know, absolutely those, those modes will be more um, energy efficient than, you know, driving around in a car. Uh, but that requires a lot of sort of land use um, policy changes and so on. Um, I don't know how feasible those things are, but what I do know is we can get people to drive electric vehicles. So that, that's kind of, for me, like the thing that I focus on, like people are always going to drive around in the car. We need to make sure those cars that are being driven around are electric cars because you know they are more energy efficient, even when you take into account these, these emissions uh, used to build the vehicle and so on. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I'm definitely in the land use needs to change camp as well. But just watching uh, up close what has happened in the Bay Area and how difficult it is to get dense housing uh, built in walkable neighborhoods that reduces the need to drive at all. Uh, it's boy, it's it's hard to put all your eggs in that basket on a on the kind of timescales uh, that we're talking about. Anthony from Marin, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for taking my call. I just. Um uh, there was a recent article in the New York Times about cobalt mining, and I was just curious Congo. if your guests. Uh, no, I think I'm on. Hello. Oh yeah, you're on. You're on. I, I was just saying uh, oh, cobalt mining in the Congo. Yeah. Right. There was that recent New York Times, and also the issue of you know more prosperous uh, nations taking advantage of mm-hmm. you know maybe um, you know poor African countries or, I mean, it just seems like it's maybe more of the same with oil extraction. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. That's a great, um, that's a great question, Anthony. You know, Katie Barenbacher, I wanted to go to you on this one. I mean, cobalt is, you know, a key and expensive material. Uh, The majority of cobalt in the world, I believe, is mined in the Congo. And, there are, but there are a lot of people who are trying to make different kinds of batteries that actually won't use cobalt, right? So, is there right. is there a chance that we could actually build our way out of this kind of extractive and exploitative practices? I mean, I think the overall issue um, is that uh, that these minerals that um, are making up lithium ion batteries are going to be in high demand, and they are concentrated in places around the world, and you know, it's the global um, nature of countries and humans to be, you know, struggling and arguing and fighting over these um, valuable minerals. But now this whole shift in batteries becoming um, more and more in demand is um, kind of shifting this whole equation. So it's it's very troublesome um, that this, uh, that the cobalt um, is coming from the Congo and there's all these um, uh, disturbing practices happening there. And so I think, you know, it's, it's really important for us, uh, for the industry um, to focus on building batteries that are not using cobalt or using less cobalt. Um, and so, you know, companies that are looking very closely at this, like Tesla, um, even like Apple, um, looking at for lithium ion batteries for, you know, computers and cell phones. Um, so I think the, the industries are trying to respond, but it is a really difficult um, problem. And um, it's something that, you know, isn't gonna go away anytime soon until we kind of figure out these new technology solutions. And there are a lot of companies, um, startups in particular, that are looking at using new, you know, artificial intelligence and machine learning to try and 
to find new ways of um, finding these materials in other places in the world um, or new, new companies um, that are trying to find lithium um, in, in new ways and, and extracting them in new ways that where, um, where these problems don't exist. Yeah. Is that okay uh, if I? Um, yeah, absolutely. A little bit. So, Patty just, Monahan, Commissioner with the California Energy Commission. Um, thanks. I I wanted to also talk about build on what Katie was saying. Uh, so we're ex- exploring in California the extraction of lithium from the Salton Sea, and the the amount of lithium that we have, we really are, could be like the Saudi Arabia of lithium, uh, and it's a much more environmentally uh, sustainable process than what we're seeing in tr- of lithium extraction in other parts of the world. So we see an opportunity. I mean, California, I would say, is the new Michigan when it comes to zero emission vehicles. We It was our number one export last year. And, you know, so we're seeing this opportunity of having an ecosystem of investments in zero emission vehicles happening here from start to finish, including battery production. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you another question. Just Joel... Tweet, tweeted at us, uh, EVs are just a way to make Western consumers feel better. The process involved in collecting the, the minerals to produce the battery is very energy intensive, environmentally destructive, and usually occurs in remote parts of the planet, which require huge logistical requirements. You can tell our, our audience cares a lot about these environmental issues. The The other question I had for you, um, Patty, was you know, some European countries are beginning to require the recycling of batteries or a certain you know percentage of the batteries that are produced to be recycled. Can you tell us a little bit about what California's plan is to, because you know the best way not to have to mine is to reuse the materials that have already been taken uh, from the earth. Yeah, it's a really important issue. And I think, you know, we've seen um, that we haven't done enough when it comes to internal combustion vehicles. And I, I, fully agree we can't keep repeating this, these mistakes. Um, and so California it is, has initiated a process to um, evaluate how best to set policies to recycle valuable minerals. And we've been making investments from in the Energy Commission in the grant side to, um, to fund companies to, to figure out how we can create the right economics for uh, recycling Especially the the battery, the battery components, but um, but also the vehicle, the, you know, the larger vehicle as well. Yeah. And, uh, Alexis, I oh. just wanted to oh, yeah, oh, sorry ahead. jump in and uh, give a name to Redwood Materials, um, a company that maybe our listeners haven't heard of before, but it's um, was founded by um, the former CTO of Tesla, JB Strobel, and they're doing some really interesting, innovative work around um, recycling of uh, batteries and lowering the cost of batteries for EVs. Oh, that's awesome! Thanks. Uh, Dolan from San Jose. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks. Um, can you hear me? Yes, we can. Go ahead. Great. So um, I really appreciate this program and I want to welcome you. I've been listening for a while and you're, uh, I appreciate, I, I like your your perspective. So welcome to the community. <laughs> so I, my, my comment was about, it was kind of like where Anthony was going with the supply chain. And I think both your guests um, answered it really well because they're just, Maybe to the uh, people who haven't uh, familiarized yourself with an article, but there was an article article from SCART, um, no, I'm sorry, from uh, the Chronicle from October 16th, talking about China um, basically has a, a stronghold on all the lithium supplies and and now are now negotiating with the Taliban. 
in Afghanistan. So that's a more of a generic question for the supply chain. But I think your answer, your your um, two of your guests have already answered that. The comment that I have that's actually good news that I want maybe some of the geeks in the group to to comment on is I read in the Consumer Reports last week that the $47 billion investment that Mercedes has made um, are producing an, their flagship S-Class Mercedes in January that is it's a game changer. They're going from 350 miles to, I'm sorry, um, 320 miles to over 650-mile range or 1,000 kilometers um, with their new technology. And that's just, that's exciting because... That just means to me, five, ten years from now, regardless of what kind of EV I'm driving, it's going to have the range that we all need and want. And it's I just have a great range. I don't know yeah. if that's been mentioned. No, we, we, just, we yeah. haven't uh, mentioned it yet, but this is actually a great uh, question for Scott Hardman to talk about sort of the evolution of range. And I kind of want you to talk about two things. On the one side, the technology, like Dolan was just talking about, you know, uh, getting better, battery packs getting denser, but also sort of understanding and maybe changing behavior by some people to realize they don't need that much range all the time. Yeah, that's that's a really good point. So, you know, we started this electric vehicle transition with vehicles with about 100 miles of range. And, and, and we've always known that that's the range that most people need. Most people's, you know, daily miles traveled is about 40 miles. So with that 100 mile car, you can do a lot of things. But we learned very early on, people want much more than that. They want, you know, the flexibility to, to forget to charge and charge every few days and be able to go on long distance trips. So right now, most new vehicles sold have 250 to 300 miles of range. And I think that is a pretty good sweet spot. Um, these sort of 600 mile range vehicles, um, I don't think we will need those. You know, there's trade-offs with um, efficiency. There's trade-offs with, you know, how do you package that large battery into the vehicle? And so on. So I don't. I think you know these these new technologies and these these big fancy batteries and so on. I often think that's a little bit of a distraction. Um, you know, we have all the technology that we need to get to where we need to go to. We just need sort of more of what we have now, rather than like you know newer, fancier things. If that sort of makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. What are your questions about next generation electric vehicles? And are you in the market for an EV? Uh, particularly if you're someone who never thought they'd get one, what could push you to get one? Give us a call now, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Get in touch, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or KQED Forum, or you can email your questions or comments to forum at kqed.org. want to talk a little bit about uh, charging problems, which we're hearing a lot about from listeners. One listener tweets, I'm interested in hearing about barriers to charging at home, PG&E requiring a separate meter for EV charging, and our high electric prices hurt the cost incentive, 30 cents versus 10 cents per kilowatt hour outside California. Commissioner Monahan, this seems like it's one for you. What can you do working with the utilities to um, bring down the roadblocks to charging at home? Well, it's a really interesting question, but I got to say, I worry more about people who live in apartment buildings where it's mm. inconvenient to charge. I mean, I think for most single family homes, um, you know, I mean, it, it it's not too difficult and if, you know, to install a charger in your home. And if you're wealthy enough to buy an electric vehicle, um, you're often wealthy enough to have, to be able to install the charger at home. And then you pay pretty low. And, you know, as long as you charge in off peak times, you're paying, uh, you know, more like 10 cents per kilowatt hour to charge your vehicle. So very, 
you know, um, less than a dollar per gallon equivalent. I, I worry about people living in apartment buildings, honestly. And that's where we in the state have been investing is trying to um, do innovative investments in apartment buildings, but also make sure there's enough infrastructure near, near multifamily dwellings to be able to um, ensure that everybody can feel comfortable buying an electric vehicle. Right now, if you live in an apartment building, it's hard for you to charge your vehicle. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was going to say from my personal experience, I've been trying to buy or lease an EV for 15 years and I am a renter in an urban area of San Francisco and it just doesn't make sense. And all the chargers are impacted in my area a lot. And um, so I, I also would love some kind of starter startup or subscription service or something where, um, you know, I can actually utilize electric vehicles um, much more. But you haven't, you haven't actually run into that out there sort of scanning the startup world. No, I mean, it's been difficult. So like companies like a get around or, you know, city car share before that would have do tests of some electric vehicles and um, some companies, I think uh, BMW was having a pilot of uh, electric vehicle car sharing, but it's really hard for these companies to make those economics work. And they end up um, so far, they haven't, um, haven't continued a, a robust electric vehicle sharing service. Yeah. One more on this theme, a listener tweets, we have one electric vehicle, one older internal combustion engine. The charging infrastructure sucks. So even though we mostly charge at home, we have to prep more than we are used to when traveling more than maybe 90 miles each way. Also, to get more people interested, there needs to be more incentives, not just tax deductions. Again, send us your uh, questions, comments. Uh, We're forum at kqed.org or Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. KQED forum, or of course, you can give us a call, though the lines are kind of busy. 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more forum after the break. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. We're talking about the future of electric vehicles and what role they may play in helping us battle climate change, as well as some of the unintended environmental consequences of manufacturing electric cars. And 
A lot of people want to talk about it. We're joined by Katie Fahrenbacher, journalist who covers climate tech and clean mobility. Is one of my first editors way back in the aughts. Patty Monahan, a commissioner at the California Energy Commission. And Scott Hardman, a researcher at the Plug-In Hybrid and Electric Vehicle Research Center at UC Davis. I want to come right to uh, Linda in San Jose out of the break to talk about charging in multifamily housing. Yes, um, the conversation about this is really important. I'm with Actera, a Bay Area nonprofit, and we're working on this issue with the EV Charging Access for All Coalition. And what we're finding is that there's two major barriers to folks getting EVs. One is cost and the other is charging. The state is doing great things in terms of cost, and Actera offers free financial incentive clinics to help folks know how to access very generous rebates to lower the cost of purchasing an EV by thousands of dollars. But the problem is, as was pointed out before the break, that people who live in apartments and condos lack a convenient and affordable place to charge EVs. Mm. One of the reasons why this is continuing to happen is that there is corporate capture of our agencies in Sacramento, specifically the the California Building Standards Commission and the Housing and Community Development Agency. Basically, they have a chance right now with the Cal Green Code to stop the inequities, but they are going along with what the California Building Industry Association wants, which is to slow down requiring new construction to require EV charging. Since 2015, hey, wait, Linda, can I ask you one quick question? Why doesn't why don't the building trades? Why don't they want to have chargers in apartment buildings? It seems like that's something they would want. They they don't want to pay the added cost of installing the wiring. And unfortunately, it's a much smaller extra cost than they realize, and it seems ridiculous that we're being penny wise and pound foolish. It's an additional 0.3% cost in a project to require rewiring in every new apartment and condo that has access to parking. So our coalition is asking Governor Newsom to step in because his agency is not doing what's needed. We talked about earlier, someone mentioned the Manhattan Project needed for EVs. Governor Newsom, we're reaching out to him, asking him to step in and insist that his agency make this equitable because 100% of family homes have EV charging required now. But only 40% will be required in new apartment buildings and condos if the code isn't accelerated. We think 100% of apartment condo residents who have access to parking should have EV parking. Otherwise, we are building for the future, for the fossil fuel past and not the EV future. So we have a, a, an easy way folks can reach out to Newsom. It's at bit.ly slash Newsom EV Equity. And we want people to... Sorry. Uh, thank you so much for that. Um, Patty Monahan. wanted to ask you if there's something you should be doing as commissioner uh, of California Energy Commission in this sort of intra-Sacramento arrangement. Well, the Energy Commission, we're the lead agency for both analyzing the, the needs on charging infrastructure and building and building them out. So the legislature actually gave us uh, close to, well, 1.165 billion, mostly for um, infrastructure build out, also a little for 250 million for manufacturing grants. And so, and I want to emphasize that's the biggest amount of money that any state has ever allocated towards charging infrastructure Mm -hmm. uh, and zero emission vehicle infrastructure generally. So it's, it's something we should be, I mean, proud of. And now my agency is charged with, with smartly deploying that, that money. Uh, and I definitely, you know, our focus is really an equitable transition for all, you know, not just for what, what I like to call the arugula eating elite that can afford to buy a Tesla, but for everybody, you know, for families that are just trying to, 
you know, kind of on the edge financially, EVs can be a great choice because their life cycle costs are lower than an internal combustion vehicle, but it's the charging. We got to make the charging easy. Um, and I, I hear the listener in terms of the new building standards and, you know, agree it's really, that's a really important area to focus on. I, again, I come back to, I'm worried about the built housing that we currently have and how to make it easier in the built housing environment and especially multifamily dwellings. So convenient charging near multifamily dwellings and capitalizing on this opportunity to marry it with solar and storage where you really get a win-win. Um, you know, I, we want to charge our vehicles on sunshine and, and, you know, there are times of the day where if you, you know, plug in your vehicle, you can be pretty assured that you're mostly getting solar energy into that vehicle. Um, so that's the opportunity that we're trying to capitalize on. We have, you know, a great starting point with this year's budget, but it is going to take a huge amount of investment from the public sector, from the private sector, and from utilities to be able to meet our goals. Yeah. You know, of course, we've been talking a lot about you know, individual passenger vehicles and, you know, the, the cars that people will buy. But, you know, there's all these other kinds of vehicles that are out there. Katie Fehrenbacher, you've written a lot about different kinds of uh, both fleet vehicles as well as other sort of commercial and industrial um, uh, vehicles that will also need to get electrified. Um, can you tell us a little bit about those, like, say, the, you know, the tractors or the garbage trucks? It seems like there's a company targeting every one of these kind of uh, niches. Yeah, I mean, it, one of the interesting things is that uh, potentially fleets, so these could be, you know, a fleet of Ubers, a fleet of garbage trucks, school buses. Um, these are fleets that are owned by government agencies or big corporations, you know, like an Ikea or a FedEx. Um, these vehicles are transitioning um, more rapidly, potentially, than um than passenger vehicles to electrification. And that's because the companies or the government agency, they can save money on, um, uh, on the cost of fueling with electricity versus fueling with diesel. Um, and then there's all these mandates, um, local and state mandates that are pushing these companies as well. So, you know, say you have a fleet of school buses and you move them all to electric, um, you're removing those diesel um, particulates and, and fumes in the air, um, and that local ag uh, air resource board agency um, is pushing the school the school board to do something like that. So there's it's a really interesting time where um, you know Patty can talk more about the the California measures that are pushing trucks um, and buses uh, towards this, but uh, it's a really exciting time for that as well. Yeah, Patty, do you want to talk about some of your work on school buses? This seems really interesting. It is actually one of my favorite topics. So we've funded over 200 school buses that have the, the potential to give energy back to the grid called vehicle to grid technology. And we're, um, we're trying to unlock the economic potential for that. So school buses are perfect for um, being able to capitalize on renewable energy by charging in the middle of the day when they're idle and then returning the energy back in the evening when the grid is stressed. So we've seen this summer in particular, we had um, a number of uh, uh, incidences where you know, the, there was high temperatures and the whole Western grid was sort of stressed. Um, and that, you know, there's an economic, if we, can give my, if we can give energy back to the grid at that time, there's the potential for cash-strapped school districts to be able to, to, um, to you know, basically earn money by, providing power back to the grid. Yeah. And 
if we can unlock that economic potential, it really, you know, it, it gives what Katie said, you know, more uh, like this potential that we could see a really accelerated transition yeah, towards just, electrification. And just building a more resilient system, not just like swapping out the cars. Um, Mark from San Mateo, welcome to the show. Hey, hey very Mark. much for allowing me on. Um, just real quick, the focus of the show seems to be electric vehicles, which are totally viable, but there are alternatives. And when you were talking about the geopolitical and economic and environmental issues of mining lithium and cobalt and other issues, you know, it brings to mind hydrogen and mm -hmm. other alternatives that I maybe don't even know about that haven't been explored. And I'm, I was just wondering if one of your speakers could you know, it seems like the government is subsidizing through tax incentives and everything else, electric vehicles. What's being done to research the other alternatives? Yeah, Mark, great question. And we have an excellent person for this. Scott Hardman, uh, his PhD is in hydrogen fuel cell technology. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about what ha what's happened in the hydrogen space as we've seen this kind of growth in the battery electric vehicle? Yeah, I mean, when, I, when, I, when a lot of us say electric vehicles, we also refer to you know, include fuel cell vehicles as that. That's, it's a hydrogen fuel cell electric vehicle. The only difference is it, it gets its fuel from a different um, place. I think the big challenge with hydrogen is that the infrastructure, it doesn't really exist. I mean, there are about 50 hydrogen stations in the state, but for electric vehicles, the infrastructure already exists. You know, it's, it's all around us. It's in most of our homes. And there, of course, there are challenges in getting it everywhere. But the real big challenge with hydrogen is how do we get um, a, a robust and reliable network of hydrogen infrastructure out there so that people will be willing to, to buy the vehicles. So, that, you know, that's really the big challenge. Um, and of course, there are, there are alternative to electric vehicles. And you know, I think the main reason people would want a fuel cell vehicle is because it's similar to a gas car in, in terms of its range and, and how it's um, refueled quickly. But a lot of people, you know, they, they can meet their travel needs with an electric vehicle um, anyway, which are also electric vehicles are more efficient than fuel cell vehicles as well. So there's kind of some trade-offs. Um, it's not clear to me the role that hydrogen will have in the sort of electric vehicle future, um, but I definitely think we need to sort of keep it there, you know, as an option. Yeah, um, and like I think that will come into... Oh, sorry, sorry. Oh, no, no, good. I was, was going to say, say fleets I think, I think and small will, countries, right? Yeah. Yeah, so I think it will really come into play when we get into, you know, these Class 8 trucks that drive, you know, from state to state having those as a battery electric truck, I'm not sure how, how feasible that is, um, but potentially that's where hydrogen has a role. In, in the places where battery electric vehicles might not work because the, the range demands are, are too high, perhaps that's where you know, hydrogen will, will find a future. Yeah. Uh, one listener, just a hydrogen fan here, says, seems to me a conversation about EVs is not complete without including a word about hydrogen fuel cell electric vehicles. California is a leader in this technology. The only emission is water, fuel, of course, getting the hydrogen from natural gas most of the time. But fuel stations aren't as plentiful as they can be. But new stations are being built as quickly as possible. Fueling is easy when it is available. It takes only a few minutes. We have a Toyota Mirai, and we are very happy with it. The current incentives make it affordable. So there's still some hydrogen fans out there for sure. Katie Fahrenbacher uh, wanted to pivot off of Scott's comment about the battery electric uh, semi-trucks. There's a lot of hype in the space um, that that because battery costs are coming down, or at least they have been coming down, and because the batteries are improving, that it will bring you know, heavy-duty trucks into the sort of electric realm soon. What do you think? 
Um, I think in the short term, it's it's hard for these huge semis to electrify just because of the costs and the range. Um, earlier this year, actually it was last year now, um, I rode around in an electric truck over in um, the East Bay in Oakland. Um, and so there are pilots that are happening um, and they're exciting, but they um, are definitely not, the volumes aren't taking off in the short term. Eventually, several years down the road, I think battery electric semis are gonna be definitely viable um, technology. But you know, uh, the companies that are being feeling pressure to buy these electric trucks, these electric semis right now are just doing, a lot of them are doing pilot uh, tests of them. Um, and eventually, you know, hopefully it'll take off more. I mean, a, an alternative technology that some um, large fleets with semi trucks um, and other types of vehicles are, are looking to and, and adopting is renewable diesel, which is basically taking in di different types of biomaterials, but a lot of times it's waste um, and, and using that to just completely replace the diesel fuel with renewable diesel. Um, let's go to uh, one final call here. Ben in Alameda, welcome to the show. Hi, I really appreciate you all having such a timely conversation this morning and I want to thank you for the opportunity to ask my question. So I'm actually a global warming solutions associate with Environment California, which is a statewide advocacy group that works for clean air, clean water and open spaces. And we're currently running a Go EV million charging stations campaign, which is advocating for things like municipal purchasing of EVs, expanding EV charging infrastructure, electric buses and bikes, a lot of things that you've discussed already this morning. Um, and you've mentioned vehicle-to-grid investments, um, investing in electric trucks, hydrogen fuel cells. But what else can cities and counties across California do to accelerate the transition to clean zero-emission vehicles um, at the local level? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, Scott, let's start with you. Has your research or do you know of any research that into sort of successful strategies for local governments to incentivize transition to electric vehicles? I, mean, I think the, you know, one of the points to call made was, was just buying them. You know, they have uh, bigger buying power than individuals, so they can go out and buy lots of electric vehicles. And that sends a, you know, a pretty strong signal to the car companies that this is what they want. And, you know, maybe it can also help some sort of increase local awareness of the vehicles. You know, if, if the vehicles are, you know, different looking or people see them charging, perhaps that can create some sort of local level, you know, awareness and interest in electric vehicles as well. So I think that, you know, the buying power thing is, is quite important. And, you know, we are seeing cities and counties and, and also the, the you know, California fleet buying lots more of electric vehicles. And I think that's that's a great thing. Yeah, I also want to put in one quick plug for non-car electric vehicles. I mean, one thing cities can do is make better bike infrastructure so that electric bikes uh, become easier to use because, man, those things are both so fun, uh, obviously use way less materials than a big car, let alone, you know, one of the new trucks. Um, and it's something that, that cities are already doing that benefit everybody and also um, open up uh, things for people. Um, Scott, I, I wanted to ask you to, uh, one more question, which is about the relationship between electric vehicles and gas prices. Um, obviously, they're the highest they've been in years, bad for working families with long commutes and lower incomes. But it's it's got to be good for EV adoption, right? Uh, yeah, I hope so. Um, gas prices are extremely high right now, um, but they're still half of what they are in you know some other nations. So uh, I kind of feel like, and I'm not pushing for this, but I feel like to create much more interest in electric vehicles get, get based on gas price, gas price would still 
have to be a little bit higher than it is um, ah. currently. But I hope, yeah, some people might think, okay, what are my options? This is costing me, you know, $50 every time I fill up now. And, and maybe that will create and steer some people to electric vehicles. But the problem is a lot of people don't know electric vehicles are an option. So even in California, 50% of Californians can't name a single electric vehicle that's for sale. So half of the state don't even know, you know, Tesla exists, for example. So, you know, before we can have like gas prices and, and other things impacting people's decision to buy an electric vehicle, we first need to all first need to engage them and, and just make them aware that the vehicles exist. Wow. And that's kind of like a little bit of a bottleneck, I think. Well, right, right. It also reminds me, gosh, we live in a bubble here in the Bay Area. <laughs> you can't drive yeah, down the I mean, street without yeah. seeing a Tesla here. We're extremely engaged individuals, and, and it's very surprising to us that people, they don't see electric vehicles, they don't see the charges. So, yeah, we need to we need to think about how do we engage much more people in this yeah. in this transition. Uh, Katie Fahrenbacher, last 30 seconds. You've been so early to so many interesting companies that you've been covering. Give us, like, uh, one company people maybe haven't heard of that um, you think is really interesting. Um, let's see. Well, I plugged Redwood Materials before, but um, there's another company that's, um, uh, I know Patty knows very well, Lilac Systems, that um, is doing some really interesting um, new uh, technology around extracting lithium. Um, and, you know, they're doing some, I think, test pilots with the Salton Sea. Um, and, you know, I've been covering climate tech. They called it clean tech back in the day when you and I were writing about this, but I've been uh, focus really heavily on climate tech these days and looking at these different startups. And I think it's, it's really exciting. You know, there was a bubble back then when we were writing about it and it's starting to get very heated um, as well today in terms of funding from venture capitalists, funding from government sources. And so um, I'm actually doing a, a newsletter, which I'm, I'm launching next year called energize.co if anyone wants to sign up for that, oh, cool. um, which is going to look at climate startups particularly. That's awesome. We've been talking about the future of electric vehicles with journalist Katie Fahrenbacher. You just heard about her newsletter. Patty Monahan, commissioner at the California Energy Commission, and Scott Hardman, a researcher at the Plug-In Hybrid and Electric Vehicle Research Center at UC Davis. I should probably plug my book. I wrote a book about green technology in 2010. It's called Power in the Dream. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour ahead with a forum with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. This is Barbara Leslie, President of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way, from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found you. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Hey, John Favreau here. There's no shortage of political takes in 2024, but quantity doesn't cut it. 
We need a better conversation about the latest biggest election of our lives. On Pod Save America, me and my co-host cut through the noise to help you figure out what matters and how you can help. Every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday, Pod Save America is breaking down the political news that makes us laugh, cry, and snap our laptops in half. Expensive year for laptops. Make sure to check out new episodes of Pod Save America on your favorite podcast platform or our YouTube channel now.